Listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Monday, the 25th of October. And as you'll hear in our first headline today, the Nationals have agreed in principle to support net zero by 2050. So in today's briefing, Annika and I are going to bring you a deep dive on the politics that brought about this historic shift just days ahead of the Glasgow summit. Annika, let's do this. As you heard there, Australia is expected to commit to a 2050 net zero target after the National Party agreed in principle to back the policy. We are in support of a process going forward that would uh, go towards the 2050 emissions target. Obviously, that's dependent upon what we see in the Cabinet submission reflecting uh, the conversations and the agreements between myself and the Prime Minister. So that's Barnaby Joyce, the Nationals' leader, uh, speaking after a party room meeting in Canberra yesterday. Today, the Prime Minister will ask the Cabinet to endorse a net zero by 2050 plan, including the measures needed to win over the Nationals. Joyce hasn't confirmed what concessions he asked for in return for his party's support, but News Corp's reporting they include safeguards for regional industries and an elevation of another Nationals MP to Cabinet. So after we heard that announcement from Barnaby Joyce and his fellow Nationals, the Prime Minister responded with a statement recognising the challenging issue for the Nationals and thanking Barnaby Joyce and his party room for their support. So now Annika Federal Cabinet's expected to ratify this net zero deal in the coming days. Yeah, I suspect they'll meet today to get that ticked off pretty quickly because the Prime Minister has to make his way to Glasgow by the weekend. We'll bring you a lot more depth on that in our briefing topic in just a moment. Victoria will be able to enjoy more freedoms from Friday as the state prepares to hit that next vaccine milestone of 80% double dose, which comes a few days ahead of schedule. I can confirm that at 6pm this Friday, we will flick the switch and we will move to 80%. So that's Dan Andrews, the Premier. Annika, this is all about relaxing restrictions ahead of the weekend, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Look, a lot of people from Melbourne and regional Victoria have been blocked from seeing each other. That includes people like me who haven't been able to see their families. So uh, there was a lot of questions if we were going to reach it maybe on Sunday. Originally, it was the weekend and or early next week. What about trying to open up a little bit quicker so people can spend money in regional Victoria, see their family and friends and move around the state? They've now announced that from 6pm on Friday, we'll be able to leave work and head to regional Victoria, which is a huge win, I'd say. And there's also some great other restriction easings coming in. No longer will you have to wear masks outside. There'll be more people allowed for indoor dining. Retail will be open inside too. It's currently only open in an outdoor form. So it will really feel like we're opening up. We did have a great week last week, but I think this 80% mark will be when most Melbournians feel like we're out of lockdown. And the significance of the timing is that this is a a huge weekend in the calendar for Melbournians, right? You have the Melbourne Cup on Tuesday, which means most people don't turn up for work on Monday, which means loads of partying normally. Yeah, it's usually our first long weekend since June. Now, they've changed that a little bit. You get a long weekend around the AFL Grand Final, uh, except most people were in lockdown for that one. So it usually does feel good. The weather starts to change. It's a really big deal, especially when people haven't been able to go to those regional areas. So that's expected to see lots of people move across the state this weekend. Hopefully that doesn't lead to a huge uptick in cases. We are hovering around that 2,000 mark and they are predicting it to get 
get to 4,000 in the coming weeks. But vaccination rates are growing through the roof down here. We're expected to hit 90% double dosed by November 24. And the Premier said that will actually free up us to do even more then. The only things we'll have to keep are masks uh, in really high risk settings like hospitals. Uh, and there might be some sort of, I guess, tailoring around massive events like the Boxing Day cricket. But it looks like mostly back to normal from later in November. Yeah, and Dan Andrews says he, he'd like to see 80,000 plus people at the Boxing Day test. Yeah, that's getting pretty close to full. The MCG holds mm. about 100,000. So they will have to be double vaxxed. He has said that. And there has been a lot of questions asked about the major events Melbourne gets, the tennis, the Grand Prix, the cricket. Nobody wants to lose them. So hopefully this means uh, we can have a really good summer of sport. And there's a new line of inquiry in the Cleo Smith investigation. WA police are searching for the driver and occupants of a car seen leaving the campsite where Cleo Smith went missing hours after she was last seen. We want to speak to the uh, the driver in person, see if there were more than one person in that vehicle, to establish exactly what was going on and uh, what they were doing. Detective Superintendent Rod Wild from the WA police speaking there yesterday. Now, witnesses have come forward saying they saw a car driving away from the Blowholes campsite around 3, 3.30 a.m. on the Saturday. Now, four-year-old Cleo was last seen by her mother in the family tent at the Blowholes campground two hours before that car was spotted. And a vigil's being held in New Mexico this morning following the death of a cinematographer on the set of that Alec Baldwin movie. Film and TV makers have come forward calling for guns to be removed from all production sets after Helena Hutchins was fatally shot by Alec Baldwin with a gun thought to be loaded with blanks. Locals and film industry figures have gathered in the city of Albuquerque in New Mexico in a tribute to Hutchins, who died on Friday. And this all comes after reports there were walkouts on the morning of the shooting on set with some crew members resigning over safety concerns. So clearly... There's still a lot more information to come out about exactly what happened on that film set before the shooting. Colombian authorities have captured the country's most wanted drug lord in a jungle raid overnight. Dario Antonio Usaga, better known as Otoniel, was seized after a joint operation involving helicopters, more than 500 soldiers and British and US intelligence agencies. Addressing the nation following the arrest, Colombia's president says it was the biggest arrest and the biggest blow to drug traffickers since the killing of Pablo Escobar. All right, in just a moment, the political wrangling behind the Nationals' net zero agreement. All right, let's get the inside story on the politics behind the Nationals' party coming to the table on net zero yesterday. Here's more of what Barnaby Joyce said after their two-hour party room meeting. The people of regional Australia are in a better position than the, than the terms and the process that were initially delivered to us. We are in support of a process going forward that would uh, go towards the 2050 emissions target. Obviously, that's dependent upon what we see in the Cabinet submission reflecting uh, the conversations and the agreements between myself and the Prime Minister. We made sure that we do everything in this place to understand the circumstances, political circumstances and opportunities that are before us and the realities that are also before us. So that's Barnaby Joyce. Annika, a huge part of your skill set as a Canberra politics reporter for so many years was reading between the lines of these statements, but also 
getting in touch with the MPs who are in the room and getting background on what actually happened. You've also been to some of these big summits like the Glasgow Climate Summit. You've been to a G20, G7, APEC, ASEAN. So you, you understand the politics of what happens before them, at them and after them. What do you make of this announcement from the Nationals yesterday? Look, in my opinion, watching Barnaby over the last few months, I always thought they were going to get there. They just didn't have many options not to. So to put it in context, there's 21 National Party MPs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's 150 parliamentarians. You need about 75 to have a majority. The Liberals need the Nationals to be in government. That's why they're called the Coalition. In return for that, they get a number of positions in Cabinet. They also get the Deputy Prime Minister's position. So should Barnaby Joyce and Bridget McKenzie refuse to have backed this, they would have had to give up their Cabinet positions. Um, That means you give up a big office, you give up a chauffeur-driven car, you give up a fairly big pay rise. It also would have led to the government being in absolute turmoil. You know, they wouldn't have had the numbers potentially in Parliament. We would have had to basically go to an election. I never thought that was going to happen. You know, I I understand they wanted in principle to uh, deep dive on this, have a conversation, get as much as they could out of it. But it was unlikely that how they were going to resolve this was with that dramatic action. That would have almost certainly led to a Labor government, which they'd agreed to it. They want, you know, net zero. So they would have actually lost that fight in the long term. And you did hear Barnaby Joyce say after that meeting, you know, it's better that we're in the room trying to get a deal for our people. And I think that is the point of it. They wanted to be there rinsing the government for as much as they can and taxpayers, no doubt, to get more for regional Australians, which is what they're saying they got out of the deal. Yeah, I guess to think about how significant this is, so the Nationals are one important piece of the puzzle. As you said, they are what gives the coalition its majority, its slim majority in Parliament. But just cast your mind back two years ago, right? The Labor Party went to the election under Bill Shorten pledging net zero and they got torn apart for that by the coalition. And then you think back to the years of the climate wars from the John Howard era in 2007 to Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Malcolm Turnbull, Tony Abbott. It's been a shamble. So I guess that historical context is quite important to understand how significant this step is that happened yesterday. It is and it isn't. Look, I I think if you look at uh, what the Liberal National Party call themselves in this country, uh, they didn't adopt the name Conservatives from the UK, but we consider them the conservative side of politics. And what that means is, you know, you're not progressive. You take longer to get to these decisions. It doesn't mean you don't get there. I I sort of look at same-sex marriage as a similar thing. You know, Mm. during the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years, Labor didn't support it. Um, Even people like Penny Wong, the Prime Minister Julia Gillard at the time, didn't support it. It then became something that overwhelmingly Australia voted in favour of. So it's how politics works, really. You know, um, progressives put up ideas, conservatives takes longer to get there, and often they do get there. It will make it different come election time. I think you're right about that. You know, one of the big things we saw at the last election, especially, was around electric vehicles. You know, we had many members of the coalition come out and say that this was a policy likely to ruin our weekends because our cars, we'd have these electric vehicles that wouldn't be able to get us down the beach and tow big things that we want to tow around the country. 
It seems like while we don't know a lot about this deal, EVs are actually going to feature really highly. And it's a reality of the world. You go to a lot of other countries and it's hard to actually buy a petrol vehicle anymore. And it seems like we're heading that way too. So I imagine that footage will be run out quite a bit. The way I think they'll get through it is by framing it. So you remember Bill Shorten came under a lot of stress last time because he couldn't say how much it was going to cost and how he was going to pay for it. Mm. Now, whenever they look at how people associate different ideas with the parties, people always say healthcare, education, Labor are really good at that. Managing the economy, national security, those are things that the coalition does. Now, we could go into a fight about whether that's true or not, but that's branding that is so deeply entrenched in people's understanding. So the coalition, is my understanding, really want to turn this into an economic argument. We're the people to get you there because we'll do it responsibly and it won't cost you heaps. A lot of the fights around um, the carbon tax and also around EVs was how much is this going to cost people's hip pocket, you know, how this is going to hurt people. And I I think they'll be really keen to frame it as an economic argument over a moral argument. And when you talk to coalition MPs, they say, we've lost the moral argument. You know, we can't win it there, even the more progressive ones. So this is how we have to frame it. So as we touched on there, Annika, it was just two years ago that the coalition were pushing back on this idea. Now they're the ones bringing it to the table. What do you think's changed? What have been the biggest pieces of the puzzle over the last two years? Look, I'd love to say there was some magic thing. I think it is time. You know, as I was saying there, Mm. these are conservative people that take a long time to get their head around massive changes. And this actually is a huge change for our country. I know that for a lot of people, uh, it's been something that's come far too late and that is the case. But there are certain parts of Australia that genuinely rely on traditional technologies. It's how we've made money as a country. It's how we've been able to have the quality of life. We've been able to have the reality of politics. If you've got to win elections and the people who live in Gladstone represent one seat, the people that live in inner city Melbourne represent one seat. And uh, they're all clumped in those groups of about 80 to 100 thousand people, but that is one seat in Canberra and they meant to have Mm. equal representation in that respect. So I think time is probably the greatest thing there. And then as you sort of flagged international pressure, you you really can't underestimate that, especially when we're trying to do trade deals, especially when we sort of need some support uh, in the Indo-Pacific from some of our European and US friends. Uh, Don't underestimate what other deals are tied to that. You know, yes, we'll help you. Yes, we'll do this, but you're going to have to lift your weight to Australia. And in some ways that probably gave Scott Morrison a little bit of cover when he was negotiating with the Nats. They love trade. They want to sell their stuff overseas. And if he's saying to them, well, we can only do that if we do this, that makes sense. Yeah. What about public sentiment? Do you think potentially the the bushfires played a part here? Because it was only 18 months ago that Scott Morrison was really equivocating on whether climate change had had any role in those massive bushfires we saw over Black Summer. And it seemed like people got a a real dose along the East Coast of the reality of climate change as they endured the pain, the damage, the smoke, the loss of life, the loss of homes in those bushfires. Look, I think it did play a role. I've been through two elections prior to that where we kept being told it was going to be a significant reason people voted certain ways and then they didn't. You've got to look at these areas. A lot of those areas probably already would have put climate change as quite a high issue. In Victoria and New South Wales, it it does seem to be more of an accepted reality than, say, in Queensland. 
And of course, straight after the bushfires, we had COVID. So whilst it was so intense at the time and we were having that debate and mm. we had protests in the street and it was great to see that sort of uprising, it did drop off quite quickly, of course, in the past two years from when it was at that peak. So don't underestimate public sentiment. As I said before, people need to get re-elected to stay in Canberra. They all want to stay in Canberra. You know, self-interest is the number one driver of most politicians. <laughs> Having said that, yeah, I think those sort of incremental things over the years, not just those bushfires, you know, going back to bushfires sort of in the early 2000s in Victoria, I think this has been a progressive shift for people and uh, we've all seen it in our own way and that shapes how we vote. So what do you see happening over the next week as the Prime Minister sort of releases more detail on their plan? We'll probably learn a bit more about what the Nationals actually asked for because Barnaby Joyce gave very little detail yesterday. And then, of course, the, the Prime Minister heading to Glasgow where we'll find out, I guess, what's happening at the international level. How do you see these next few days playing out and what will we learn? So the PM will go back to Cabinet today uh, and get approval for this. We already know the Liberal members are in favour. Uh, they're the majority, so there won't really be a hold up there. What we do know is that how they want to deliver it is through cleaner fuels, electric vehicles and more renewable energy. Now, we might get some more details on that, not only this week, but in the lead up to the election next year. What will be remaining a little bit unclear is, of course, what deal they came to with the National Party. Now, to have a coalition in the first place, they have an agreement, a National Party agreement with the coalition, with the Liberal Party. Sometimes bits of that leak out, but they usually keep it pretty tight. Now, we know that they wanted more support for regional communities transitioning, and I don't think many Australians would reject that idea if you live in an area where jobs rely on this and the reason for your whole centre or town or wherever you live is because jobs and the community rely on coal. You need extra support. I think there'll be some other stuff in there too, as we sort of flagged. Uh, under Malcolm Turnbull, there were five gnats in Cabinet. That's dropped back. Getting an extra gnat in Cabinet gives you a little bit more room to push your weight around. Keith Pitt was one of the people, his resources minister, that was dumped from Cabinet. He might come back. That's a pay rise for him. Hmm. I also wouldn't be too sure about nuclear energy. Now, I know everybody's terrified of nuclear energy. We've all seen Chernobyl. It definitely has changed a long way since then. And there is an understanding that a number of National Party MPs say we actually will probably need some sort of nuclear technology in the future. You look at France, their emissions are great. 70% of the electricity in France is derived from nuclear power. So it is sort of a reliable energy in terms of uh, keeping the lights on, as we often hear. It is also really risky. And uh, you might have heard David Littleproud say in recent days, we know with nuclear, we need to educate before we legislate because as I say, you've got to win elections and it's not a very popular thing. Mm, yeah, that could be a real curveball if nuclear energy is a big part of the plan. All right, great riffing with you, Annika, as always, on the real politic behind these big um, chess moves in politics and particularly the tricky area of climate policy. We're bringing you all the updates uh, and the key details in our briefings over the next few days. Listener.